Hello and welcome to the Steph Sansaro podcast. My name is Steph and I am so grateful to have you here with us this week as we embark on a very exciting podcast episode. Now if you're clicking onto this episode then you already know who the guest is but before we get started this podcast is a space for open and honest conversation. A space for my guests and I to lean into vulnerability and to talk about the things that are really important to us and the things that we want to raise awareness for. Now, if you are familiar with today's guest, then you will know that he is going to be talking to us about human health, planetary health, and the health of all beings on this planet. And I particularly am pretty, pretty chuffed about today's episode because If I'm completely honest with you, this guest is actually one of the main reasons I got into podcasting in the first place. He is a little bit of an idol of mine, so it was a bit of a pinch me moment being able to record this podcast. And I can be vulnerable in saying that with you, that this was kind of a big deal for me. He's someone in the plant-based world that I've always looked up to and respected, and he is incredible in person just kind genuine everything that you think he's going to be so i really hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as i do because today's episode is very very beautiful we dive through a lot about plant-based health and we talk a lot about his journey through that uh, but also just empowering you guys listening today with things that you can take on and you know things that you need to know if you are thinking about heading down more of a plant-based path so Without further ado, I would love to give a very, very warm welcome to the incredible Simon Hill. Simon, thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm very excited to do this interview with you. I've uh, been a longtime fan of your podcast, and so I know a lot of my listeners are too, so today is just quite exciting. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to seeing where we go with this. Me too. It's We've got lots to talk about, I think. We it's do. It's going to get very, very cool. Now, I just want to grab a picture for the listeners who may not be that familiar with you. Like, Tell me a little bit about yourself, what you're doing, and tell me a little bit about like what life was like before Plant Proof. Cool. Well, yeah, a lot's changed in the past six years or so. Uh, today, I, I'm a nutritionist and a physiotherapist by education, and I spend most of my days now well I was writing for most of my days and now I've got a a lot of that time back and I spend most of my days on my own podcast and researching the guests that I have for that and really trying to break down information on nutrition science evidence-based material and and making that accessible with the main goal being just to give people good quality information that they can rely on it's trustworthy and they can make informed decisions in a world where it's terribly confusing and it's hard it's really hard to know what should we be eating to to be healthier and to reduce our risk of diseases and we hear one thing one week and then we hear something completely different the next week and i'm hoping that i'm adding a a sort of trusted voice into that conversation and that's really what I'm, I'm spending most of my days doing now. Now, before that, so when I finished, I grew up in Melbourne and 
I my my dad is a doctor and and is in the academic side of the medical world doing uh, research on type two diabetes and and how our blood vessels work and all that sort of stuff. So I've been exposed to science since I was a little kid, and I would come home and see piles and piles of of scientific papers printed out on the coffee table in his car all over his desk and so it's just been a part of my life it's 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 very normal for me to to see science and and i've developed i guess since an early age a deep appreciation for what science offers and how we can use it to better understand how things work and and how we can hopefully use it to improve our health and our experience and so when i finished uh, high school the decision for me was really what area of science would I go to, into, <laughs> not would I explore science. And I, I was grappling with the decision, would I go to medical school? And my marks were, were quite good, but to, to get into medical school in Melbourne, I needed to do slightly better. I was accepted into to Tasmania, a university down there. And uh, when I was 17, 18, I had a very and still to this day do a very tight knit knit group of friends and was playing a lot of football and the, and the social aspect of my life was very important and so moving to Tassie was was kind of out of the question and I decided to stick around in Melbourne and do physiotherapy and I loved it it was a great course and I, I ended up graduating and, and working as a sports physiotherapist for a while and, and working with AFL footballers and private practice and that experience just reinforced how much I love science, but also gave me uh, the practical experience. Gave me the 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 feeling of the the reward in helping someone with their health and and helping people achieve their goals. So, you know, I knew that this was going to be something that I would always be doing. And over the years, it's it's kind of moved from the the physiotherapy side of things more to nutrition and everything that I'm doing today absolutely and now sitting in front of me is your new book yeah so I, I'm 10 years ago I never saw that coming uh, I never really thought I would be an author it still feels weird that people one day you're not an author and the next day you're an author it's a very weird weird thing uh, but I have always enjoyed writing and enjoyed sort of dissecting words and thinking about how I can better communicate so the book in many ways was about getting that information that I really thought the public needed but also was a huge learning curve for me and and required me to really go deep into thinking about language and communication and how can I how can I give this information to the reader in a way that's very accessible but is also hopefully quite inspiring. Definitely. I was having this conversation with someone two days ago that whilst reading your book I felt like I was listening to a friend. You have made it accessible and you know it's not too hard to understand. I think everyone's going to read it and feel this friendly voice that comes through. Yeah I hope so. I mean that that's the challenge that there's 1498 references in that book and I hope it doesn't feel like that. Uh, all of those are available online. I made the decision to put the numbers in the in the sentences and in the paragraphs so people understand that it is 
it is backed by a, a scientific reference, whatever claim is being made, but they're not in the book. Uh, they're easier to access online, and I think it's a little less overwhelming. Uh, but it's nice to hear that. I have heard that from from quite a few people now that they are finding it accessible, and really, that's that was one of my main goals. Mm, absolutely. Now. In the beginning of your book, you begin to tell a story about your dad and how you found the plant-based diet. Mm. Would you mind telling that to the listeners? Yeah, sure. So my dad, uh, Michael, who I mentioned before, he is uh, the the one that really he planted the seed for for the the inspiration behind writing this book, or his experience did anyway. And we would often spend weekends just doing fun things uh, exploring parts of victoria or going on trail walks or visiting wineries and my brother would often tag along as well and it was something the three of us would do and on this one sunday in it was an autumn day and my brother wasn't there it was just my dad and i and i can vividly remember this day he he had and still does have an old mgb a white uh, convertible it's it's a classic british car and we would really enjoy driving around in that with the roof off and and this was a sort of sunny autumn day and we'd had a great day going to all these different wineries and and uh, dad always wanted to go to the small wineries and he loved to talk to the winemakers and i remember at the time thinking a lot of the time thinking come on let's this is dragging on let's go but now when i think back about it it was it was really my dad showing me how 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 much passion these people had in their trade and he was giving me that that first taste experience of purpose and and meaning and and it was an important experience for me because i could i could connect with that i could see how much these the it wasn't about the wine it was the fact that these small vineyards you got to meet the owner and they got to tell you all of the ins and outs of oh and they were so proud of what they were doing <laughs> and on this uh particular day we'd had a great day and we were driving back home and and he started to to sort of grimace and and was clearly experiencing some discomfort and i i asked him if he was okay and he said he had a little bit of chest pain but sort of downplayed it and we continued to to go home to cook dinner and we started cooking dinner uh and and i remember checking in again and he he again was downplaying it uh but having spoken to him about this many times since he he was certainly aware that something was not right we had dinner and and i headed to bed again he was reassuring me that everything was was fine and i woke up a couple hours later to some noise in the in the kitchen and thought i'd better get up and and see what's happening and i went and checked on him and he was very pale and i could really see the fear in his face by this stage and he had actually picked up the phone to call triple zero and of course this is quite common they ask is there anyone else there that can help describe the symptoms and so and he was quite breathless so i spoke to the paramedics and described what was happening and where he was feeling pain and and they said based on where we were because we had two houses at this stage one in the city and one that was quite rural in rural victoria 
out near the Yarra Valley. And they said, well, based on where you are, we need to send a helicopter. It sounds like your dad's having a cardiac arrest. And so there was, there was fear. I think today, if I was experiencing that, there might even be more fear because I know what that means for many people. Mm -hmm. Uh, sudden cardiac death is the number one cause of cardi of death from cardiovascular disease in this country. In fact, is the number one cause overall. And, and usually happens out of nowhere with no clinical diagnosis prior. So dad was experiencing a cardiac arrest. He was only age 41. From, from the outside in, he was otherwise healthy. A young dad, everything was going well for him. He was working hard, probably carrying a little bit of extra stress, like many in his position in Australia, you know, making ends meet and, and, and whatnot and having two full-on kids. And so this, for our family, came out of nowhere. It was not anticipated. He wasn't on any medications. He wasn't regularly seeing doctors or reliant on the public health system. And so they sent the helicopter and they attached, when they got there, they attached the heart rate monitor and oxygen and put him on a stretcher and took him to the helicopter. And I couldn't fit in the helicopter, so they told me that I would trail in the in the ambulance and you know my mother and my brother were in the city so I was actually there by myself so all of a sudden you know hours before everything was completely fine having a great day next moment it's the middle of the night it's pitch black he's in a helicopter and I'm in an ambulance trailing to go to the hospital uh, so there's you know tremendous amount of fear and unknown uh, you know, that I was experiencing at that stage. And we got to the hospital and after a little while, and my, my mother and brother had come and met me by this stage, I let them know what was happening. The doctor came out and he said, look, your, your dad is going to be fine. We've saved his life. And that was the most important thing for us at that time. And, and so we were all very happy and elated and, and we did then have a discussion with the doctor, the cardiologist, after he'd taken a thorough family history and with my, my um, mother and my brother and, and my dad. And it was made very clear that because his dad had had a heart attack as well uh, and, and that this had been in our family, that my brother and I should be screened as we're getting older which is not in itself bad advice, but that's kind of where the conversation ended. Nothing on prevention. No, there wasn't, there wasn't anything on sort of why this, this happened or why this runs in families. And, and look, you know, thinking back, did, did the cardiologist miss an opportunity or was it just a, a, a lack of time? This was a, a quick conversation and they were doing their best. Mm. I don't know, but what I've, I've learned in, years since was that I lived 10, 15 odd years of my life feeling very limited and very disempowered because the way that I saw it was, well, my grandfather had a heart attack. My dad, who is seemingly healthy, has had a heart attack at 41. And that's most likely going to be my fate and my brother's fate. And so it wasn't for 10 or 15 years later until I was really inspired to get into reading the nutrition science and understanding if there was anything more to it and it 
became very clear to me that the main reason by and large that these diseases that we have normalized and we have normalized them and and we've accepted them in our society you know i know growing up it wasn't just my family my friends at school their parents had significant issues with chronic diseases be it type 2 diabetes or various cancers and these were people in their late 40s and 50s you know very young people that are experiencing this where in other populations it's not the same and and so going into the nutrition science and and really looking at these diseases and what's causing them and the risk factors it became very clear that they're running in families by and large because families are adopting the same lifestyles and when we can understand that, then we can actually move from disempowerment to empowerment and go, okay, well, what is it about our lifestyles that we have control of that can help us modify that risk and can allow us to experience the health and longevity of other populations who are doing very well? And so that was a mission for me, a healthy obsession to really just understand firstly for myself and my family what can we do what levers can we pull to to take back some control and and not just put everything down to a genetic predisposition yeah and and don't get me wrong like there there are genetic predispositions for sure but by and large and the researchers tease this out Genes are probably responsible for around 20% of our, our health fate. And there's studies on identical twins that, are, that have showed this and tried to tease out what's, what's the percentage that's influenced by genetics, what's the percentage of our health that's influenced by environment. And, and identical twins are a, a great set of, of people to study this. And so around 20% of our health fate is determined by our, our genes mm. and 80% through our environment. And there is a very small percentage of people who have a certain genetic card that's been dealt that unfortunately, no matter what they do with their lifestyle, their health fate is already predetermined. And that's very, very sad and very unfortunate. But for most of us, we can really determine through our lifestyle whether these genes are expressed or not. And that in itself gives me a tremendous amount of of empowerment and hope and and was something that i wanted to spread absolutely and i hope that you're really proud of yourself for not accepting your fate you know and for progressively trying to change it you know and your health your dad's health and your brother's health have obviously changed significantly since then yeah and look it's tough when we're in a society that has normalized because the easy thing to do is just to accept it, that that's the way it is, because it's, it is pervasive through our society. We're living in a chronic disease epidemic, so to speak. It's everywhere. And the sad part is people are being stripped of their quality of life. They're, using, they're losing years of life. And it doesn't have to be that way. There are, there are other options. And, and if we turn to the science and we use that as our, our map or, and compass, we can actually steer our way out of that and live a life where we have much higher quality of life and can do more of whatever it is that, that each of us love to do. So which way did you steer? Well, I started to realize that 
against the the pre-held beliefs that I that I had I needed to significantly change my diet and that was challenging because I was I was the mid-20s guy in the gym that had picked up my nutrition knowledge at that stage from a football club environment from gym in, from the gym environment from reading health and fitness magazines and so I was very much conditioned to see animal protein as the be all and end all and the the plants on on the plate were an afterthought there was very little diversity and so when I started to read all of this information and see that well even though that diet was serving me in my 20s because I, I wasn't a, a person who had ill health. I was feeling fine and, and I was able to, to perform and build strength eating that way. There's no doubt about it. But what I hadn't considered was what was I setting myself up for. Hmm. And when I was reading the, the science, it was challenging for me because that diet was working in the gym and was working from a performance point of view. But everything that I was reading was telling me that that is the almost the exact opposite of what I should be doing. Wow. And so I had all of the same fears that many guys and, and, and girls, but particularly men, when they think about moving to a more plant-based approach. Because it was clear that that was going to be the diet that would lower my risk of cardiovascular disease specifically the most. And... And so I, you know, will I be able to consume enough protein? Am I going to lose my strength? All of these very valid questions and fears that they make sense. Like if you live in this current environment, you will have those questions. They are normal. If you're not asking those questions, then I'm worried. <laughs> so the, and I always rem try and remember those questions that I had and step back into into my feet then so that I can it helps me now when I keep getting asked the same questions instead of getting frustrated I just realize that everyone is at a different stage and they are just me a few years ago mm. and and so for me one of the key considerations was I wouldn't just change my diet if it meant I could have longevity and avoid chronic disease if if at the same time I had to sacrifice my health now and my performance that wasn't going to be an option I needed to know that I could safeguard my future whilst still feeling physically fit whilst still performing and achieving my my physical pursuits and goals and so there was a lot of going back and forth and 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 challenging what I was reading and ultimately it just became clear that at the very least I needed to give it a go and see how my body felt and that's what I did and I started quite slowly for me it, my, the the transition that I made with my diet really played out probably over nine months mm -hmm. maybe even a year wow. and and so it was a, a, a slow process and I was building confidence and I was feeling great hmm. energy-wise and things that I had never really considered because, as I said, I felt quite healthy. But I felt a new level of energy and I felt like when I would wake up in the morning, I would feel more rested and more sort of 
vital for the for the day ahead and these little indications this little bit of feedback that i was getting was just telling me i'm i'm on a good direction and let's continue with it and i never really had any any type of endpoint in mind and and things like the the planetary health aspect which i write about in the book they came a long way later for me yeah okay. it was the health aspect and and really the the reason for me at, at the end of the day where i chose plant exclusive and i write about in the book that i don't think there's one optimal diet i think there's a set of characteristics and there's a few different variants and they all tend to be plant predominant or equally could be plant exclusive but for me ultimately once i had had made these changes based on my personality i have a personality where it's easier to draw a line in the sand at some point mm, i can relate and so during that nine months what i experienced was this is hard the environment's hard the social circumstances are hard and there were definitely days and weeks there where i would cave mm. and and i think it's easy to forget that that this changing those habits is very hard and yeah. i certainly experienced that and i had a lot of internal dialogue around can i do this this is is this too hard should i just revert back and i i, I probably just not probably i definitely did just keep thinking about the experience my dad had all the science that's showing me that this is going to be the best thing for my health long term and to keep persevering with it and and ultimately i think drawing that line in the sand for me was a way of not having to worry about things creep back in and and ultimately end up back at my former diet so the the pillar of sort of planetary health and all life on the planet so to speak came you know much later for me mm. and i think without you finding your why you probably would have likely given it up i would have and i try and communicate that because not everyone has had a family member who's had a heart attack in front of them and not everyone's had poor health themselves and they can be the hardest people to motivate to make change because mm. they really have no reason and so someone might be listening right now who's 22 has not seen any any sort of loss of health in their family is feeling relatively healthy themselves and it's going to be hard for them to connect with this information when a lot of it is around avoiding disease that they may experience in 30 40 years right mm. and and that is comes all the way back down i believe to our sort of genetic wiring we've never really had to focus on long term it's been a need to survive it's all about the instant mm. and and now we live in a world where it's all about instant gratification oh yeah delayed gratification which is what we're talking about in terms of reducing our risk of chronic disease is is a skill it's a much harder practice mm. i write about that in the book a little bit um but it's it's hard it's hard when you're in that position and my message is to not wait for pain to connect with this information and make some changes before you experience that absolutely how can you like recommend people to start incorporating delayed gratification into their lives today it's a great question. They really, I, I think you need to build trust with yourself is, is a key thing. 
and and we know that i speak about some experiments in the book around instant gratification and delayed gratification and there's one neat one in there people may be familiar with the marshmallow experiment it's an experiment very famous experiment that was out of stanford university and there was a, a follow-up experiment so let me talk you through the initial experiment and then i'll, I'll talk you through the the follow-up the initial experiment was just around putting one marshmallow in front of a kid and saying you can have that marshmallow or if you wait 15 minutes we'll give you two and of course some children caved and just took the one they couldn't they couldn't delay the gratification instant gratification got a hold of them and then other kids were able to delay it and they tracked these kids and this is still a little bit disputed and somewhat controversial but they tracked them and it seems that the kids who were able to experience delayed gratification end up, ended up being more successful healthier later in life it was it was an an, ad, an advantageous skill to have wow and but where this gets really interesting is some researchers thought they wanted to really understand well, why is it that some kids could delay gratification and others couldn't? And it turns out trust could be a big factor. Mm. So they ran the experiment again. But what they did before they did the experiment, they got some crowns and they, they kids came in and the first pack of crowns was a used set of crowns and lots of them were broken. And they said to the kids, if you can, if you can wait and not use these crowns, when I come back in, I'll give you a new set. And of course, what, what happened was, and this is the really interesting part of this experiment, they came back in and for, all, for the kids that, that waited, some of them, they gave them a new set of crowns and the other ones, they broke their promise. They specifically broke their promise. So, so certain kids in there were able to display delayed gratification but when it came to getting the crowns, they didn't get it. Mm. So that kid, he's going to lose trust. So he's lost some trust in his environment. Mm. And so then they did the marshmallow experiment after. Same thing. And they, they with the same kids. And of course, the kids who had a very reliable experience, who were told, wait and you'll get a fresh set of crowns, they did the same thing with the marshmallow and they were able to wait and they got their two marshmallows. The kids who, who experienced the unreliable experience were promised crowns but didn't get them. Mm. Of course, when they, were, they said, here, have one marshmallow or wait and you'll get two, they ate the first one. Because based on their experience, they, they, they felt the environment was unreliable. And so this comes down to, to our own trust with ourselves. Mm-hmm. If we're constantly telling ourselves we're going to do something and set out to do something and we don't do it, we're creating an unreliable experience. We start to believe that we can't, we can't achieve that, and 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 that affects us to build this skill of delayed gratification. So, what I suggest is to set a very realistic goal. If you just, if your goal is overnight to be completely plant based, and you, and 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 for many people that's a huge deal. Oh yeah. Right, and in one or two weeks, and that was a one or two week goal, and you didn't achieve it. After those two weeks, you'll feel deflated, and you'll 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 probably give up. Mm. Whereas if you're if you set something that's a little more realistic, like having 
one plant-based meal a week and starting there for people that have none, you're more likely to succeed in doing that. And each time you do that and you feel good about it because you stuck to it, you did your one plant-based meal a week for four weeks, you build trust with yourself, and then you can start to stack that on these changes on top of each other. So delayed gratification is, it's a skill and we have to, we have to train it. And, and it starts with really setting realistic goals, things that we, we can achieve and slowly making them bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and pushing out the, the, the gratification uh, in a delayed sense, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It's building that trust within yourself. I love that. That's wonderful. Now, You've obviously turned towards a plant-based diet and done hundreds of hours, especially for this book, into a plant-based diet, but also others as well. So you're not biased in this book by any means. That's what I love about it so much. But you have done hundreds of hours of reading through these studies. Now, do you have one that is you know, the most significant or the most shocking that you have found? I love this question. I might not choose one. I might choose a couple. Because there are a few a few goodies, I think just top line, just very top line, and this sort of gives us some some perspective about the importance of what we're talking about. 2017 Global Burden of Disease Study. It's the largest study ever looking at risk factors for chronic disease and for premature death, dying before we should. And so they looked at all major risk factors: alcohol consumption, smoking. Uh, physical inactivity, unsafe sex, unsanitized water, you name it. There was a huge long list of risk factors, including poor diet being one of them. And and this was a, a multi-country study across the entire world. And they they found that poor diet was the number one contributor to chronic disease and to premature death. Jeez. Now, specifically, they they noted that the, the most important contributors were diets that were high in sodium and diets that were low in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, and seeds. <laughs> so fairly, fairly clear and very important information right there that the number one cause of chronic disease globally and premature death is insufficient fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Okay, so we can just start there. That's a foundation study that's giving us a good idea as to where we can, can sort of move towards to lower our risk of these things and hopefully live a, a life where we have higher quality of life. I would say another study that I think is two studies here that I think is really interesting. And I think this is interesting because there's been this slight movement towards low-carb ketogenic and carnivore-style diets. And, and look, people can, can do these diets and experience some weight loss and some short-term uh, benefits for sure. There's, there's enough anecdotal information out there to, 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 to not be able to deny that. Like it's definitely happening. But I'm, I'm concerned as well as most of the evidence-based nutrition uh, world about the long-term effects of, of this kind of dietary pattern. And there's two studies, there's many studies, but there's two studies that really speak to 
to how such diets could be setting us up for failure and, and for chronic disease ultimately. One is a, a study that was published in Nature uh, to 2014, and they looked at a carnivore or completely animal-based diet and a plant-based diet. And these were microbiome researchers. So they were very interested in what happens to our microbiome being the gut bacteria that resides in our uh, large intestine, the colon. And, and these gut bacteria are important because we have a symbiotic relationship with them. And, and we now understand that if we look after them, they look after us. They help improve blood sugar control, decrease inflammation, improve our gut health locally, and improve our health downstream. Now, in this study, they, they, they noted in just five days, in just five days when people adopted the all-animal-based diet, they had an increase in inflammatory bacteria. They had increase in, in bacteria that's associated with IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. And they had an increase in secondary bile salts, which we know are clearly linked with colorectal cancer. And so that was observed. Those were changes in the microbiome just with five days of adopting an animal-based diet. Now, they saw the opposite on the plant-based diet, which does make sense because we, we know that fiber is what, what these gut bugs love. It's what they feed off. And so in the, in the plant-based diet, dietary pattern arm of the study people had anti-inflammatory bacteria anti-inflammatory molecules increase in short chain fatty acids which are both protective and beneficial in the gut and downstream as i mentioned before and so that that's a very important study for us to to look at within the context of this low carb ketogenic movement of course we don't look at just one study and 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 make recommendations from that but it's one piece of the puzzle. And that's very much backed up again by a 2015 randomized controlled trial. So these are both randomized controlled trials. The randomized controlled trial in 2015, they, they looked at a really, really interesting study actually. They had two, two groups. They had African-Americans and they had rural Africans from Uganda. And, and they were looking at a similar thing. And the reason why they were looking at this was they noted that the African-Americans had 13 times higher risk of colorectal cancer than the rural Africans in Uganda, 13 times higher. And they noted that a big difference was the African-Americans diet was much richer in animal protein and saturated fat. And so they, what they wanted to see was what happens if we, to their microbiome if we swap their diets. We'll give the rural Africans the Western diet and we'll give the African-Americans the rural African diet that's high in fiber and plant protein. And they saw in this, this was a two-week trial where they were looking at, at the microbiome. They saw as soon as the African-American subjects adopted this more rural African, high plant protein, high fiber diet, they had a decrease in those secondary bile salts that I just said, which mm. are linked with colorectal cancer they had a decrease in inflammatory bacteria they had an increase in short chain fatty acids and the opposite rang true for the rural ugandan uh, rural africans adopting the more western style high saturated fat high animal protein diet and so i think that those are just a few of of many uh studies that are 
that are interesting and, and sort of help us piece things together. If not a study, but I think one one of the, the very interesting pieces of sort of recommendation or, or guidelines in the last few years is Health Canada. And Health Canada really off the back of research like that global burden of disease study that I mentioned and and various uh, randomized controlled trials looking at different dietary interventions and health outcomes and also and also environmental science health canada came out and completely changed their dietary guidelines and they're very much leading the way in, in terms of the 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 most evidence-based guidelines in the world today i think wow. and so i actually recommend if if people are are wanting a bit of a just a very simple summary of healthy eating I often refer people to the the Health Canada guidelines. And they came out, and I I have this here actually, they came out and stated two things. They stated that their research was not going to be influenced by industry (laughs) when they were creating these guidelines. And they also stated that they would consider the environmental impact of diets and the importance of sustainability for Canada oh I love that and so their guidelines now if you look at the plate half of the plate is fruits and vegetables as it, as it should be they they have removed dairy as a as a necessary food group Wow so that's the first that's the first guidelines in the world that have really done that yeah and ever. yeah and and they came out and 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 essentially just justified their position based on the fact that they wouldn't be influenced by industry research and they make a very specific recommendation that says choose plant protein over animal protein so they're they're very much recommending a plant predominant diet to canadians to improve public health and to improve the the environment and the sustainability of diets within canada so yeah that's that's just a few of of many things that I think are interesting. Yes, and thank you for sharing them with me. Do you know what I'm excited for is actually watching what happens to Canada with these guidelines in place. Like what happens in the next 10 to 20 years? What are we going to see happen? It's exciting. It is very exciting. And the the other, I guess, interesting part of this is how influential are gu- guidelines. And that probably brings us to the food environment. And some will argue that the guidelines are important. But ultimately, unless the food environment shifts, then the average person doesn't adhere to the guidelines anyway. Mm. And there is an element of truth to that. So Health Canada need, if, if they really do care about public health and sustainability, which they've came out and, and have, have sort of pledged, then in the next 10 to 20 years, you would expect to see changes in food environment, changes to formulation of, of foods, changes to taxes and subsidies of different food groups you'd like to see ultra processed foods become more expensive and less convenient and fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes foods that we want people to eat more of to become even cheaper and even more convenient and and changes in marketing and changes in in uh, industry influence on that overall food environment there, there's a plethora of things that they would need to do in order to to really change the health of Canada. But the guidelines is a good start. Absolutely. And I'm, I feel a little bit daunted 
from you just telling me everything that they've got to take on, but it's not just Canada, it's everyone, everywhere. This is a, a global crisis. Yeah, it is, and it's it's becoming an economical decision for countries, and, and they they it will get to a tipping point where it just becomes too expensive to have majority of your population sick. They're not productive, and it's a huge burden on the healthcare system. It's costing trillions of dollars around the world, and more importantly, it's stripping people of their quality of life. And every country knows deep down that a, a more prosperous, better country from an economical point of view relies on a happy country. It relies on happy people at the end of the day. And we're, we're, we're not moving in the right direction at the moment if, if we're thinking about maximizing happiness. No, and this study that just shocked me in your book that almost brought me to tears was a lot about global starvation mm. and when you likened the calories within 100 grams of, I think it was feed, or 100 calories of feed just translates to only three calories of beef that would be eaten. This whole thing, it's just, it's really, it gets to me quite a lot. Yeah, it's an inefficient system. And I do, I do, I should add, I think there's reason to be optimistic and have hope. And there is, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that the book is more inspiring than it is uh, fear evoking. But these are truths and, and, and we have to we have to realize what the problem is in order to fix it. And you're right, there are many, many people starving today. And at the same time, we have a food system where 83% of land today is that is used for agriculture is for animal agriculture. But that 83% of land, not only is that tearing down our forests and losing we're losing our ability to capture carbon and we're losing biodiversity, not only... Not only do we have that to consider, we need to consider that it's only providing us 18% of our calories. So we have this very inefficient system. As you say, with cows, for every 100 calories that you feed into that animal, you get three calories out that is edible. And so you're losing 97% of the calories. Where is it going? Well, that, that, that cow is a living animal. It's using energy. It has a, a, a basal metabolic rate like a human does, and it's burning energy just to exist. There's calories going into the production of the skeleton, which is not used to the production of eyeballs and organs and all sorts of areas where we're losing the, the calories. And chicken and, and pork are somewhat better. Than, than cows, but they're still terribly inefficient. And there is a very, very big study that's looked at all of the grain that's produced in the world. And if we were not only not just to feed that grain direct to humans, but just use that land, if we were to use that land and grow crops suitable for, for human consumption, more whole grains and legumes and nuts and seeds, whatever was right for that area of the world, we would be able to produce food today for more than 4 billion extra people on earth. How incredible would that be? Which, which is huge. And I think when people connect with that, then it becomes much more meaningful to, to say, hey, okay, I'm going to vote with my dollar for that system where I can. Yes, I'm only one person, but the more of us that are doing that, the, the better. And, and of course, there is legislation that will need to change as well. But the position that I take in the book and, and I think is is a good position is if we want our leaders to change then 
we need to be leading leading the way and setting mm-hmm. setting an example. We can't be asking for change, yet at the same time we're not willing to change our own actions. So there is there is I guess uh, a lot to be to be distressed by if you look at the 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 planetary health or hunger around the world but the optimistic side of me thinks that we have so much information and so much resources and humans have shown before that we are very innovative and creative and we can look at COVID-19 like we can adapt and change quite quickly if we have to oh yeah the big difference with with COVID-19 is it's very acute it's here it's fast it's an infectious disease Mm. Whereas planetary health is more like chronic disease. It's like the chronic disease of our planet. Mm-hmm. It's slow and it's been slow. But, and, and, and perhaps, and, and as sad as it is, perhaps the world needs to see a catastrophic climate event. I would rather we don't wait for that. Me too. And, and we already are seeing climate refugees, in fact, in parts of the world. And this again speaks back to human rights. There are already people being displaced from climate change. And we know absolutely categorically that the biggest contributors to climate change are privileged countries like us here in Australia, like the United States, and and other very developed countries that that are burning more fossil fuels and eating more meat than anywhere else in the world. And so this does become a human rights issue because we're contributing most, but we feel it the least, the least because we are the most protected and insulated and that's a result of our our privilege so if we it's not just about the planet it's about humanity and and again if these if if you're connecting with this information then it just becomes more meaningful to say hey how can i how can i change my daily actions to be more aligned with how I how I feel and what my beliefs and what my values are and one of the best ways for people to do that is to start leaning towards more of a a plant exclusive diet yeah so the that's quite sort of uh, unanimous now is that if in, in order to lower your environmental footprint of your diet the the single best thing you can do is change the type of food on your plate on your plate and that means eating more whole plants. Whole plants have a significantly lower environmental footprint than animal foods. If you're looking at greenhouse gases or uh, water or land use. And sometimes the, a little bit of confusion can arise around the, the local kind of argument. And there's great information out now showing that, look, supporting local has its benefits it's great to support your local community and to understand where your food comes from absolutely but when it comes to the environmental footprint of your food where it comes from actually makes up a very very small percentage of the environmental footprint Mm. and and that's globally around 10 percent or less of a food's footprint is from transport and 90 percent is from the production and the harvesting and really comes down to what the type of the food is and this is why it doesn't matter if the beef is from imported or from next door. It still has a terribly higher environmental footprint than legumes, mm. for example. We're talking 30 to 60 times higher per kilogram of food. So 
that's a that's a huge lever that people can can pull and i think find the level of commitment that works for you the as plant exclusive as possible is a is a great goal but ultimately it needs to be something you can sustain and is life lasting not something that's just two weeks or three weeks yeah definitely and i think we've spoken about a lot of compelling arguments already for this plant-based diet but I think there's still a lot of genuine concern that it's not sustainable or that we're going to be, you know, experiencing vitamin insufficiency. You know, is this a genuine concern? I think that's a genuine concern with all diets, firstly. I do think that if you're adopting a plant-exclusive diet or close to, you need to appropriately plan, absolutely. And that's what part three of my book, uh, Principle 4, Nutrients of Focus, is is sort of dedicated to. I want people to thrive and and adopt a nutritionally adequate diet, absolutely. But I think sometimes this this is used to create fear that is somewhat unnecessary. And and I think some perspective is required here. If we look at the average om, omnivorous diet today, if it wasn't for folate and for iodine that has been fortified into our food system, mm. folate's added to flour and is throughout our food system, Iodine's added to a lot of salt. These were added because the average person would be deficient in folate or iodine. So the deficiencies in having to plan for, for, for adequate nutrient intake is not actually something that's new. But it is, it is right, it is correct that if someone is moving to a more plant-based approach, different nutrients of focus pop up. So when you're adopting a plant-exclusive or plant-predominant diet, you're actually getting way more folate, for example, hmm. like double. So, Whoa. so there are there there are nutrients where you're you're instantly upgrading, getting way more, and then there are some where you need to pay attention to, <laughs> and they're very easily covered, but it requires some education at the start. And so I go through these. I go through B12, iodine, which I think is important, omega threes. Uh, and selenium and zinc and iron and calcium. These can be these can be covered through a supplement or fortified foods or through foods themselves, depending on 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 each one. And we can jump into any of those if you want. But there are there are important considerations, and there are also some myths out there. So, for for example, iron. Iron is the the number one deficiency globally. It affects children and and women of childbearing age more so and often we hear that that vegetarian and vegan women have a higher risk of of iron deficiencies and that's not what the science shows Hmm. if you if you yes if you look at developing countries they do and and that's because vegetarian and vegans in developing countries they're they're not vegetarian and vegan by choice they're vegetarian and vegan because they're living off one grain one type of grain for all of their calories. So again, it's very important to know what studies we're looking at. Yeah. And and when you look at at the science on Western vegetarians or Western vegans, they do not have higher incidence of iron deficiency. They do have lower iron stores, which is interesting, but there's no science to show that high iron stores is beneficial. Mm. And in fact, there is quite a few studies showing high iron stores is associated with type 2 diabetes. So more science probably to, to sort of uncover what all of that means. But bottom line, there's no increased risk of iron deficiency. That's not to say that someone on a plant-based diet 
will will not develop iron deficiency. It's the number one deficiency in the world. There will be people on a plant-based diet and there will be omnivores who have problems with their iron levels. Most of these will be child, uh, women of childbearing age and children. And there are various strategies that they can use to, many that I write about in the book, that they can use to, to increase their iron levels. I definitely don't want to give too much away from the book because you've definitely done an incredible job of diving into each of the nutrients of focus and I just want to commend you for that because I know so much more now about how to go away from today's interview even and just to tackle the things to include in my diet but I think the concern for some people is also with supplementing or just eating a general diet um, how often do we need to be having vitamins and minerals do we need to make sure that we're eating them every single day or is it okay if we eat them once on a Thursday and once on a Sunday the the RDIs are are sort of an average daily basis so it's not that you have to track your micronutrients and every single day you're you're achieving the the 100% of the RDI but we do want that to be an average over time so it's not as if you would you would have five or six days of eating really poorly and then have one good day and it's going to even out in the wash. Yeah, it's it's not something that you have to zoom in on and sort of micromanage. Uh, it's more about the the consistency over time, and your body does keep stores. So you're you're going to be okay there in terms of if you have a day of less eating and and the next day you eat a little more, it does even out, and it is about that average. But I do want people over the course of a week to think about consistency as, as much as possible. For example, selenium. The, the recommendation in my book for selenium is if you have one or two Brazil nuts a day, that gives you more than enough selenium. And so I would have one or two Brazil nuts pretty much every day. But there are days when I, I don't have it. And it's not as though I'm fearing of selenium <laughs> deficiency. Oh, my gosh. I know, I know that if I'm doing it more often than not, my selenium levels are fine. You don't have an alarm on your phone. No. Oh, it's selenium o'clock. No. no, and and look, there are foods that I definitely do try and eat every day, but they're more food groups. Yeah. So I'm just trying to have a wide a wide variety of foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, and there are a few kind of non negotiables for me, like dark leafy greens and berries which are a daily thing for me for, for different reasons. I write about both of those uh, in, in a little bit of detail in Chapter 7 on brain health. And, but other than that, it's, it's just about being consistent. And then if you supplement anything, like for example, I take a B12 supplement, that for me, that is a daily B12 supplement. And I do take it daily because more, more just because that is out of habit and it's it's easier to to make sure i'm taking that every single day and i know i'm getting exactly how much i i need but when it comes to food you you don't need to treat it like the supplement just eat with great diversity and if you're eating all those food groups and you're feeling full and satiated you'll you'll be getting everything that you need amazing now what can you tell me about soy and testosterone this is an interesting question so you may have heard that soy negatively affects male hormones. And of course, one of the initial questions I had was that because soy is a great source of protein. 
So of course, naturally, if you're wanting to cut down on animal products, you think, okay, I might have some soy. But then you hear, hang on, that is going to result in feminizing effects. That's going to, to cause, quote unquote, man boobs, which is often sort of thrown around online, on blogs and on social media. And where does this come from? So there, if I, I talk about the evidence hierarchy a little bit in the book, and and that essentially, to summarize that, means that not all science is equal. There is some science that is less reliable and less valid, and there is other types of science that is more reliable and more valid. And down the bottom is sort of expert opinion and case studies like N equals one, just a story about one person, or a petri dish type study under a microscope outside of a human body or potentially with an animal tissue these are down the bottom they're they're sort of interesting maybe hypothesis generating sometimes but they're not really the type of information we're using to make public health recommendations sometimes they creep onto social media and they are made out to be very high quality evidence Mm -hmm. whereas randomized controlled trials in particular where we have a controlled environment. What that means is the difference between that and say case study is that when you are recruiting subjects into a study and you, for example, you want to look at how does soy affect male hormones? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to run a randomized controlled trial. Half the group is randomized to having no soy. The other group will be randomized to having soy and we will control for everything else. So everything else is exactly the same. Good. So the only variable is soy. Love it. Right? If you're not running the trial like that and you have a finding, how do you know if it's soy or if it's something else? Gosh. Right? So the randomized controlled trial gives us a bit more reliability and accuracy and confidence with the findings. And 2020, 2020, yep, or 2019, there was a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials looking at exactly this. So these are the highest quality studies looking at how does soy, specifically soy, how does that affect male hormone levels? Mm. And they, they summarized and brought together 41 different individual randomized controlled trials. So think about 41 labs around the world running a trial with humans, with males. So not, not, a, not, not a case study with one person, not an animal study. We're getting human males in. We're feeding some of them soy, some of them are not having soy, and we're measuring their hormone levels, estrogen, testosterone, total testosterone, free testosterone, everything we need to know about their their hormone levels. And then this meta-analysis takes all 41 of those trials, which are run by different researchers all across the world, and that helps remove some bias in case there's a study that has bias. And, and summarizing them together, bringing all the data together and saying, okay, what What's the effect? What are we seeing here? And they found that the consumption of soy, and this was three or more serves of soy a day, there was no significant effect on testosterone levels or estrogen levels. So that's the highest form of evidence that we have today that shows there is no need to be worried about the consumption of soy. And I recommend having it around the, the similar sort of level of consumption as traditional uh, soy consuming countries would have it, which is you know, one, two, maybe three serves a day, but probably one or two serves a day within a diverse diet. Again, we want diversity. So it's not about just having tofu at every single meal, 
but there is no reason to be fearing soy. And to add on top of that, there's some enormous benefits that people will most likely get from eating more soy foods. There was a very big umbrella review. This one definitely was 2019. And again, it was a review of all the science looking at humans. And it was quite clear that people consuming more soy had lower risk of heart disease. They had lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure. They had lower risk of type 2 diabetes. And not only that, uh, women had had uh, less severe hot flushes. There was uh, lower uh, pain during um, menstru- menstruation. There was a whole host of benefits, including increased bone density. And so... There is enormous evidence to suggest that eating more soy, particularly if you're replacing or downshifting on animal protein and swapping it for soy, there's huge benefits on offer. And and so I think it's certainly something that is worthy of consideration within someone's diet. In saying that, if someone wanted to eat a more whole food, plant-based diet without soy you can still do it it doesn't have to be in the diet absolutely and if someone had a soy allergy which a small percentage of people have then it need not be in the diet it's not absolutely necessary but if if you're if you're not allergic to it then it's completely safe to include within your diet something else that pops up on soy now and then is that it's genetically modified and and that it just it is destructive for the amazon and so we maybe I'll just touch on these. The, the vast majority of soy that's actually available for human consumption is not GMO, it's organic. So if you're worried about GMO and you're worried about, say, glyphosate or different herbicides, it's nice to know that most of the soy products that are sold definitely in Australia and, and in other countries I've visited, there's always non-GMO organic soy available. Most of that stuff is, is not GMO. Most of the genetically modified soy, in fact, almost all of it, is fed to cattle. Mm. So if you're concerned about GMO, and then you may want to look at the consumption of meat that is coming from factory farms, because that's where a lot of it's being fed, particularly into the, the uh, pig and chicken industries. They, they use a lot of genetically modified soy as, as food. The, the Amazon question comes up a bit around soy and, and say, tofu being destructive and leading to deforestation. Mm. And this, again, has been very, very clearly laid out in the science. They've gone and looked at what, what are the, what's driving the deforestation in the Amazon. And it's right, soy is a huge driver of deforestation in the Amazon. It is. However... 75% of soy from the Amazon, that 75% of the, of the soy that's grown in the Amazon is fed to livestock. It's ridiculous. Just 6%, because uh, quite a bit goes to biofuels as well, just 6% of soy that's grown in the Amazon is tofu and soy milk and tempeh and these sorts of foods. And so it is, by and large, the animal agriculture industry that's responsible for this mass clearing of the Amazon that we really desperately need to to help keep the the global temperature down. And I think it's just worth having that, being able to zoom back out and understand and having that perspective on things is helpful 
for when we're uh, trying to make sense of everything and, and piece it all together. Yeah, because it is, it's confusing. But thank you for explaining that in such depth. And I think there's going to be a lot of happy people out there listening today celebrating the fact they can now go and eat soy. Yeah, now, eat, eat your tofu without guilt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's their mantra for the day. Now, in your book, you make it extremely clear that you are a bit of a coffee addict. Am I right in saying that? I'm not sure if I'm an addict, but it's a daily ritual. A daily ritual. Well, be as it will. As 2021 rolled around, I sort of vowed to make decaf sexy again. And my question is that in your book, you make coffee and tea sound incredible, really like powerhouses for antioxidants and polyphenols and all this type of stuff. Now, my question is, does decaf still pack a punch like that or is it without no, it does, and it seems that the benefits, most of the benefits from coffee do not seem to be driven by caffeine. There may be some benefits from caffeine, particularly from a performance point of view and in the, in the, the sort of uh, sports performance literature, there is definitely, uh, they, they lean on benefit from caffeine supplementation, but the, the benefits from, from, say, longevity point of view and total like mortality seem to be there for both decaf and for caffeinated coffee. So you're right, it seems that the benefit is driven more from the phytochemicals and, and the sort of uh, unique properties of the coffee bean rather than the caffeine itself. That is good news because I think occasionally some people like myself might get a little bit jittery when having you know mm. some coffee or caffeine and there's a little bit of anxiety there so it's just something that I tend to uh, avoid absolutely and I think anyone who experiences that anxiety or jittering with coffee should identify that and and if decaf because decaf can still contain a little bit of caffeine yes so it depends how se- depends how sensitive you are mm. uh, but I, I, I think I write something along, along those lines in the book somewhere unless it got edited out. Um, if that's you, then yes, yeah, certainly you want to be looking for a decaf option or uh, some sort of lower caffeine tea, something that's not putting you into that sort of fight or flight anxious mode for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's good signs for me. Thank you very much. Now, this book is basically a manual. It is empowering and it puts the reader's health back in their hands. Now, you teach us that the responsibility of our health and our planet and the animal welfare is really firmly within our hands and with our dollar and our decision. My question is, how can we educate, empower and pass this down to our children so that then they can have that responsibility to help make the planet a better place too? I think they can educate us (laughs) (laughs) in many ways. And and I say that... uh, part as a joke but partly not because I don't believe this is about instilling new values or beliefs in people the values and beliefs are already there we all of us care about our planet and people care about animals and a lot of that is conditioned out of us and and as we grow older our actions move further away from those values and beliefs and so children are actually a great example where they, they understand their values and beliefs and really, really want to align their actions with them. And so I think it's about, it's actually about nurturing that and letting that guide us. Because if we, if we 
stop conditioning that out of children, then the next generations will be perfectly fine. They actually don't need us to tell them how to think. Hmm. It's already there. They need, we need to stop the conditioning that remo- removes that from them. And I think a, a, a really a great way of doing that is by setting a great example at home. But if, if children can connect more with nature and look screen time and all of this is highly debated and it's part of our world now and technology is important and has its role but if we can not let it completely take over our lives and we can still connect with nature and get outdoors and experience nature and have a love for nature and grow plants and 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 experience that then we have a reason to want to protect it if we don't nurture that and we lose that connection with nature we no longer have a real a real desire Mm. to look after it and so when if we can help kids really stay true to themselves they will see it as our planet they will want to look after it as their home and ultimately they're the ones that will guide us out of this i hope so i really hope so your book It gives me so much hope that if people can read this, if people can read other books similar to this, that we actually can get ourselves out of that state of crisis that you do mention within the book. And it doesn't, like you were saying before, it doesn't make me so fearful. It actually does. It gives me a lot of hope. Now, in your book, you focus quite a lot on longevity and eating for longevity. And you particularly pose to the reader, what would you do with all of that extra time My question, Simon, is what do you want to do with all of your extra time? I just want to keep leading by example and and helping people connect with those values and beliefs and helping people improve their quality of life and find more meaning in their life. And, And I've realized, and going back to my physiotherapy days, what I said earlier, the most rewarding thing for me is helping someone else. And so if, if, if I can continue for as many years of my life as possible to help people that are around me, that I know is, is something that brings me enormous pleasure. And so I will feel like that's a, a great life lived, uh, which is a fairly uh, broad answer. But, you know, I, I wake up in the morning. I don't feel like I'm working. I feel excited about the day that's, that's ahead. Hmm. I feel optimistic and you know just like a lot of the blue zones out there if someone was to say to me when are you going to retire it's not even a thought i don't think about retiring i think about doing this and having conversations and trying to educate for as long as i can well the future you are creating is incredible and i'm going to ask you that question if you could close your eyes right now and tell me what the future you are creating looks like to you what does it look like? It looks like a, a less divisive, more cohesive world where people are happier. I think a lot of this comes down to happiness. Mm. And the the climate predicament that we're in, I actually see it as something much bigger than just planetary health. We have a, it's a problem. And I think the learning is in solving the problem because to solve it, we are going to need unity. We're going to have to change our behaviors, change our view of the world, change what our priorities are. 
what's what's most meaningful to us and that's where the lesson will be learned mm. so i i see genuinely see a happier world with better mental health less anxiety less fear because we've solved a very big problem and then we've been able to to create the world that we can see we can see it and we have the solutions we know we have them but we just have to act and if we if we do act then we will we will create a a better world and and ultimately we will be a generation that's known for acting and and it'll be you know an incredible story for people to look back on Mm, to be movers and shakers yeah i love that and you are leading the charge and you are leading by example now as we are wrapping things up i would love to just quickly check in for everyone who's following along at home how is your dad now he's very good he's you know it's interesting some of the hardest people to to help change their behavior are your family members right Mm -hmm. they're the last person that wants to listen to you (laughs) and i think there'll be people listening that can relate to that and so i found with my dad very early on and he's a very smart man much smarter than i am i found it wasn't going to be a conversation around science oddly enough and it was going to be more by leading by example and showing him that he didn't have to sacrifice anything from a flavor perspective. And I knew that in time, because he is so connected with science, that he would start reading the science. And what got him to a position, I believe, was was just cooking enough meals and spending time eating with me and with my brother, who my brother uh, has adopted a completely plant-based diet as well. So is my mother. And my mo- I think my mother has the odd piece of fish still. And and so over time he realized from a flavor point of view he wasn't going to have to sacrifice anything. Hmm. And he started nudging in that direction. And, and, you know, today he's sending me photos of some sort of legume Mediterranean bowl that he's made. He's a, he's a big foodie, loves cooking. So <laughs> now he's showing off and... And he, I'd say, eats a, a sort of very thoughtfully constructed Mediterranean diet, mm-hmm. which I think is a great dietary pattern. And I write about that in the book. If the mm-hmm. Mediterranean diet is done well, and as it's been described in literature, it is a very plant-based diet. And so, you know, fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes, nuts and seeds are the foundation of his diet. And that is a long way from where he was. So I'm very proud of that. And his inclusion of, of animal protein is much less and you know he's at a point where it's sustainable he feels happy and he's still making little changes here and there it's amazing and i know we were talking about in the beginning that we don't want to have to have you know pain or incident or chronic illness come into our life to promote us to make a healthier change but i guess in your case it has been for the better for all of you and that, that fear that was there is just so valid because I can understand how scary that would have been for you. And yeah, it's just, it's really incredible. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for writing this book. I've got to say, I'm so excited for almost every person I know to own this, but just everyone in Australia, around the world, I just think 
so much good is going to come from this and I hope you take this compliment because this is not a fluffy compliment. This is genuine seriousness. Like this book is going to change the world. I hope so. It's uh, I've It's been out now for only around a week. I know. So um, a lot's happened in that week, but it seems to be resonating with people and you know, I do, I do believe in the information in that book and, and if someone's listening and is confused by all of the changing headlines and, and whatnot, I believe that this will help minimize, remove some of that confusion, will, will immunize you, for, for lack of a better word, against misinformation. Mm. So you can finally take some control, feel confident, and it's not about a particular dietary label. I want you to understand the science, the science for human health, for planetary health, for all life on the planet. Connect with that, and you will you'll make the changes that work for you. Absolutely, thank you so much. Now, before we wrap this up, where can the listeners find you? Uh, probably most active on on Instagram at plant underscore proof. Mm-hmm. If they want to to hear me talking more, they might be over my voice by now. But if they do, they can they can listen along on the Plant Proof podcast. There's a, a weekly episode or almost weekly, depending how busy I get. And if they want the book, they can go to plantproof.com forward slash book. I have a landing page there with all of the different retailers, depending on where someone lives. And one last question. Sure. What is giving you life right now, Simon? Well, particularly this week, it's just seeing the response to the book and it's just so pleasing to see that people want this information. You know, I knew that writing it and I knew that the, the, it was evidence-based and the information inside was good. And if, if people would get it in their hands, it could make a big difference. But I didn't realize that it was going to sell as well as it has. And it's, it's the feedback from the retailers is that it's definitely reaching people far beyond my community, which is great because it means it's reaching mainstream Australians who have never come across any of my material before. And that's really the goal, the goal in writing it. Of course, I want to help people that are already connected with me and help them optimize their diet. But ultimately... I want to reach lots of families that have never come across this information before and may have found themselves in a similar situation to what I did and just need a little bit of good quality, trustworthy information to to take a bit more control of their health. Thank you. Mm. And it does that. And I'm so grateful. So thank you for sitting down and having this conversation with me. This is actually a really big privilege for me and it's just, yeah, it's an honour to be able to spend this time with you and for you sharing all your knowledge it's incredible so thank you thank you i've really enjoyed it and i would uh love to do it again amazing thank you well there you have it that is our episode with simon hill i absolutely loved recording that episode i stepped out of the studio in sydney and i just felt ecstatic there was such an energy and such a presence about Simon and I think that just comes from being around somebody who is so passionate and so driven about what they do because well 
as you can tell through this episode, Simon has done countless amounts of research. He has read the studies, flipped through all of the papers, and he has done it to not only empower himself and his family, but to empower each and every one of us, which is just so beautiful and so priceless because what Simon has done is given us the power. He's given us the power to choose, to make better decisions about our health and about our future. Now, if you had anything reach out to you in today's episode, then don't hesitate to find Simon on all of his platforms, his podcast, The Plant Proof Podcast. He has a blog. He now has an incredible book on offer, which is available almost everywhere where books are available. So definitely get your hands on a copy. It is a guide. It is a manual. It is everything you need if you are just starting out on your plant-based journey or if you have been plant-based for 10 years. There is something in there for absolutely everybody. So I guess a big thank you again to Simon. I just want to say what an absolute honor it was to have you on the podcast today and how awesome it was to meet you and just get to know you and thank you so much for you know all that you do for our community and all that you are doing for our world it is really inspiring so thank you so so much and to all of you at home thank you again for just choosing to tune in to these conversations each time they become available it honestly means a lot to me and I want to continue being able to bring amazing guests to you each and every couple of episodes and just helping you and teaching you and doing all of the things. We have so much to learn from others and conversation is such a beautiful medium to be able to do that with. So I just want to thank you for making this all possible each time these episodes become available. So thank you so much for sharing your time with me. If you would like to stay up to date on these episodes then you can hit the subscribe button and I would absolutely love to hear what you thought about this episode leave a review on the podcast app it would just be very cool to see what you learned from Simon if anything popped out or if you have any questions feel free to reach out to us on Instagram Simon is contactable at plant underscore proof and you can find me at Steph Sanzaro For now, have a glorious week and thank you so much for tuning in.